0: To the Companion Gundog Podcast, I'm your host Grayson Geyer, and uh, I have a very special guest today. Um, my friend Ben Lipinski is joining me at the kitchen table, uh, and we've got uh, we've got designs on a uh, a book review for you guys. Um, but before we do that, I'd like to introduce Ben. Um, I'm sure many folks uh, that are that are members of my audience have not heard the name before um but in my opinion ben is uh one of the brightest young minds in dog training um he's uh he's made a name for himself in the protection sports and in the police dog training arena um and uh and before i just continue to go on i'd like for him to just explain a little bit of his background and uh and maybe some of his accomplishments which i know is not fun for him but ben hey thank you for being here welcome and uh please tell us a little bit about yourself uh and your you know professional life
1: yeah uh thanks for having me and uh helping me with this idea that i had um first of all um my background is it's kind of similar to yours but in reverse um, so I started as a, a kid in a hunting family in Minnesota, and got into training retrievers and pointers um, for you know our own personal use in you know in hunting uh, on the on the farm, and uh, then got into the competitive space um, as a teenager. Found myself uh, skipping more school than I was going to in order to attend training to work in a gun dog kennel and to compete in hunt tests and field trials with my, my lab at the time. Um, and then I ventured into the, uh, more working dog space, uh, trying to learn about the, the art of police dog training and, uh, found myself involved in a new sport now protection sports association or PSA, um, as well as some Schutzen. And that's what I train for now is, you know, police dogs, um, protection sports, uh, both as a, a handler, um, a decoy or a helper. And I'm a, a judge for both of those sports now, um, PSA and American Schutzen and trying to, um, you know, enjoy some bird dog training here and there. Uh, I have a cocker spaniel from you and we still get out in the woods a little bit and hunt, but not as much as I used to. So, you know, from what I understand you, you kind of lived that life in reverse
0: yeah it's it is it's interesting i haven't completely uh really thought of those parallels but absolutely I, I spent my formative years as a trainer um in the protection sports namely psa uh as, as the major outlet but but plenty of schutz and as well um and uh and spent much of that time as a decoy i never never came close to accomplishing the things you have by uh, let's see how old are you now 27. The ripe old age of 27, and you are a judge for PSA and American Mm Schutzen. You've decoyed national level events. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have a national champion and Fury times 2 on both
1: sports in American Shits and MPA's national champion in PSA and American and Schützen. that's and that's PSA 3
0: and I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not up to date on this but how many PSA 3 dogs have ever even existed?
1: Uh there's currently 35 um in the world in the uh, entire sports history. Gotcha. Um, so I was lucky number 28 uh-huh. or Fury was and uh now we're up to 35 dogs.
0: Thirty so that's thirty five dogs, and I would say the sport has probably been around for close to thirty years now.
1: Uh two thousand. So, so two thousand twenty three.
0: Twenty three so just twenty-three years, but thirty-five dogs, that's a that's an amazing accomplishment, especially considering I think like in the early days, it took like ten years for them to even make up like four or five of those. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? It's
1: it's been a lot more dogs in the last few years. Um I titled in twenty twenty one and that was number I was number 28 that year and now there's been seven dogs in the last 2 years so we're getting we're getting 3 4 sometimes 5 dogs in a year now
0: and that's i mean that says a lot for that just the growth of the sport you know and and the time that i was involved and in it was still in its you know uh early early years and uh but i you could see i mean it, it just has it, it's filling a gap for for a lot of people for whatever reason and i mean that's a completely Different topic and and fodder for a for a number of other podcasts, but um, but I'm proud to have been associated with PSA. And
1: yeah, I think, I think um, when you certify as a decoy in 2014, you just posted a picture of that. or Yeah, was it that was my second that? certification. Your
0: second cert. okay. Yeah, I, po- I, I certified the first time in I think late 04 or early 05. Oh okay. Um, Cause and,
1: in my induction uh introduction was 2015 and. The first trial I was at, I believe you were decoying that Is that, that right? trial in Charlotte, yeah,
0: oh yeah, that yeah. was a good one that was, yeah <laughs> I didn't,
1: didn't know um you at the time, but I remember that now
0: for those that weren't there, uh, I took a spill with a dog on on a drive, and uh and I realized like I was aging into a place I probably shouldn't, and, and then you started
1: <laughs> doing gun dogs.
0: <laughs> and I started doing gun dogs, yeah, so that was the very last trial I ever decoyed, so it's cool that we have this overlap. Um, and and for those that don't know, American Schutzend is a relatively new offshoot of Schutzend uh, that's uh, kind of been created in response to the watering down of what's known as the IGP program internationally. And uh, there's just a lot of politics um, on the international stage that uh, that are forces working against the development of strong working dogs in the modern era and so american and uh, i think is really cool because it harkened, harkens back to the early days of of that particular sport um with a few new kind of things in there but what i you know like the most about it is just uh, in the protection side i think especially it's going back to the roots and and building a true strong um working dog
1: yeah it's a uh, um an outstanding group of individuals that started that about three, four years ago now, um, trying to return that sport to its original intent of being a, a better breed test for working German Shepherds and Malinois. It's open to all breeds, but that's the real intention is to preserve those working breeds in America. Because um, the, the feeling was that some sports um, are no longer testing the dogs um, to the best ability and creating you know more suitable dogs um, for for work which is like a very important thing to me because that's where you know I do sports as a, a hobby and something fun for me to do with my dogs but the the real value is in um, creating you know service dogs police dogs uh, military service dogs that you know fulfill a, a true working purpose and you know our our sports um i don't think should get too far away from that because that's where a lot of our our breeding happens both in america and worldwide <coughs> worldwide is from uh people that compete in sports right because they uh are the ones that are going to put in the work with their dogs and do the breeding with their dogs um it's not just it's not the average you know cop or military handler that that is producing these dogs it's mostly civilians and people in sports um like myself
0: yep and and so for for those listening hopefully you're catching on to the parallels um you know that our our wonderful hunting dogs exist because of those people that uh, have enough of a passion about that kind of work to go out and involve themselves day in and day out compete with their dogs and uh and an aid in the genetic selection of the best dogs. And and so that's why we all look to those, uh, you know, field trial titles, hunt test titles. And, and I think for us, um, we can look to protection sports as kind of a canary in the coal mine. Um, so internationally there's, co- you know, e-collar bands, uh, even banning prong collars. So tools are being banned worldwide. This stuff is on our doorstep. Um, and so it's important to look to the folks that are, uh, that are kind of b- bearing the flag for us on the front lines, which in my opinion are the protection sports guys. They tend to be exposed in a little different way than we do because they are, uh, so involved internationally. And, and so, you know, if, if, uh, if you're not tracking all these, political issues now I think it would be smart to to look to that and just recognize that there's there there's movements for these kind of things in our country for the watering down of our games um, obviously conservation we're very lucky to be tied into that because we have a, a strong kind of um, political force on our side that that's protecting hunting and, and the rights of Americans to do such things um, but just be prepared you know uh, to to you know, understand that there's a chance people may be coming for our way of life at some point in time and i'm not to be a fear monger or anything like that but uh um i think it's pretty obvious so look look to those protection sports folks know that that's coming and uh and again you know i appreciate ben coming two-time national champion or at least Two sport national champion, American and PSA, both extremely prestigious awards. And that's PSA three, uh, and American Schutzen three. Those are the highest levels of those two sports. Decoyed at the, uh, at the national level and, uh, has built, a, uh, a, an, an enormous amount of dogs for his, uh, for his time in, in the world.
1: Well, I think, um, Something that you and I both uh, recognize more than a lot of people is that there's a lot to be learned and gained from people competing in different venues than you, right? If you're a lab guy, the number of, you know, working Malmois folks you may know um, is probably very small if you even know any. And same thing for my friends in in protection sports or police dog world, like they might know the name, you know, Pat Nolan, because um, of a lot of the crossover work he's done in both of those spaces Um, but outside of that, there's not a lot of, um, there's, there's not a lot of crossover, um, between the two, uh, to where those people know each other. But, uh, for those of us that do know people in both spaces, there's a lot that can be learned on both sides, um, or, you know, in completely different, uh, spectrums, uh, that can really, you know, elevate your dog training and your, your knowledge of, of dogs and, and working dogs in drive, which, you know, for everyone that appreciates, um, working a dog in some capacity, whether that's agility, hunting, um, police work, protection, sports, you know, tracking, like all these dogs have a similarity where they were, you know, bred with a purpose and, uh, work in a lot of drive and understanding those, um, you know drive states and mindsets of the dogs that come when you're working in that type of you know attitude like um there's a lot to be learned from both right um and i think having you know different types of knowledge from different trainers is something that um you know helps with you know my success as a trainer and and a lot of your knowledge and ability to <laughs> relate to people is because you have um worked in both of those spaces
0: as well yeah, and there's so much. I mean, you and I both happen. Uh, you, in a much more formal sense, happen to be proteges of Jerry Bradshaw, uh, and I, I think yep. I've always thought of Jerry as as just one of the the brightest trainers I've ever known. But really, kind of a, a standard bearer for dog training in general. He's he's always willing to expose his beliefs to criticism and defend them, and and but also not a guy that that is. Uh, I'm trying to come up with the best way to put this, but he's not, not afraid to be wrong either. And and so it changes opinion on exactly. And so it's, it's been, you know, having, having that influence on me has been such an important part of my development as a trainer and, and in all areas of, of sport and pet training and whatever else. And, and so there's, there's him and then there's plenty. And, uh, you know, something I talk a lot about on this podcast in particular is like traditions of training. And so, nothing fits perfectly into a little box. There's no just specific retriever training traditions. There are many retriever training traditions. There's no specific pointing dog tradition. It it goes on and so so on and so forth. And the same in the protection sports. But we're in this age of of information sharing now. We have so much ability to to learn from each other, to um, to expose ourselves to one another, and to interact with one another. And so I, I, you know, that's if if there's anything that I would like to feel as if I'm helping people do it's that to expose themselves to other areas and to learn. Um, And so with that said, you know, let's let's get to kind of the point of today's podcast, uh, which is a book review uh, on Training Dogs, a manual by Conrad Most. And I'm going to let Ben kind of take the lead on this. Mostly because he's much more organized than I am, and he's got all his notes in order. Uh, but also because you know this is uh, this is a book that was written at this point well over a hundred years ago, uh, and it more than holds up today. and And that's going to be the theme of this conversation, I, I believe. But there's there's plenty to be learned from this book still that's still relevant today. Uh, but if all you do is read it for the historical perspective, you'll be getting plenty out of it um so with that said ben kind of give us a little touch on uh, uh on this book get a start and see what you got
1: yeah so um what i want to do i want to start by reading a, a small passage from the book because it reminded me um i have my note here It reminds me of something that you said to me one time about um dogs varying more within a breed than between the breeds right so i'm gonna start by reading something from the book here and then we can uh go into that. Individual dogs differ widely both physically and psychologically. For that reason, methods of treatment must also vary, not only as between dogs of different breeds, but also between those of the same breed. Variations in character may be inherited or acquired during the individual dog's life. There may be hereditary differences in keenness of the senses and powers of understanding, mental, as well as instinct and feeling, emotional. Variation in capacity for service is the result of one of these powers predominating over the other. A high level of keenness of the senses and a good faculty of understanding do not necessarily guarantee good service. This capacity also involves, as among men, the power of the will, which is dependent upon instinctive and emotional life. The instincts of the domestic dog, for instance, the instinct for freedom, the defensive instinct, that of the pack and that of the chase are not always developed in the same degree in individual animals. This necessitates differences in the disciplinary methods employed, according to the task in view. For example, a pronounced instinct of the chase is desirable in a hunting dog, but not a working dog. Variation in instinct may be caused by the absence of the struggle for existence, whereby natural selection is impeded. In a state of nature, Defective instincts, such as a defective instinct of flight from impeding danger, may be punished with death. There are some instincts which we do not consider desirable in a domestic dog. For example, that of flight just mes- just mentioned. If this were very pronounced, it would have a prejudicial effect upon loyal- loyalty. We do not, therefore, in breeding our dogs, follow nature in every respect. The kind of artificial selection we make in breeding causes considerable variation in the condition and strength of instincts it is the same in the sphere of emotions we have dogs of weak character with great sensitivity to unpleasant experiences and dogs of strong character with less sensitivity we also have temperamental differences there are two differences resulting from propensities acquired during life that is formed as a result of the individual animal's experiences so what kind of spoke to me here is that, um, like you said, this book was written a hundred and thirteen years ago now, and he talks about you know understanding the differences in our dogs, and that's kind of something that um, was really um, interesting to me is the way in which he outlines some training doesn't speak to a you know, Single approach for all dogs of even the same breed, right? So when we talk about, um, you know, training a a lab like a hunting breed versus training a Malinois a working breed, um, we often talk about the differences. Um, but there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of um, differences between two labs, and there then there then there is sometimes between a lab and a Malma. and he <clears throat> is very um, in tune. You can tell with the the individual dog he's working on the individual task, right? He's not, um, he, this, this book is called Training Dogs, A Manual, but it's not a start here, end here type of manual. It's a, here are theories on training, here are ideas, and here are the tasks, but this is not a one size fits all approach.
0: Sure i and I'll tell you like when I listen to you read that, I, there's no doubt in my mind that if Conrad most were alive today he he would be a guru, right,
1: right right
0: like so he's he it's not only his ability to put these thoughts in into words and and articulate them beautifully, it's what he says being so poignant and still matters today and is still something that I see. Not just novice pet owners and 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 uh, maybe folks that are trying to get into the game struggle with, but I see people that I consider to be really good dog trainers struggle with those very simple concepts that hey, not only are not all dogs created equal, there's so much nuance, and and your job as a high level trainer, somebody that really uh, is is seeking to to work towards a high high end of the craft is to to be able to manage that not just shove every dog into the same hole or to only select for a certain type of dog i think that becomes an issue too as so many and i'm and i've been so guilty of washing really nice dogs out for one specific thing i didn't like about them when i should have become a better trainer and, and worked through it you know and
1: yeah um and I think part of that, like we all know this, right? Every dog's an individual, but part of um, many books uh, written about dog training, many podcasts, many video series, many DVDs, depending on what uh, era you're from, um, <laughs> is is to uh, yeah VHS uh, to to sell someone's individual program, right? Mm-hmm. This is John's way of training a dog. This is Brad's e-caller approach book. This is, you know, insert, you know, hit name yeah. um, into how to train a dog like them, right? But I think the most honest thing um, that you can, you can do as a dog trainer and say, you don't need to learn like my approach. You need to learn, you know, a, a nuanced approach to training this dog.
0: This is, I mean, I mean, and for anyone that's listened to this podcast for any period of time, we're hitting on the theme of the podcast, which is ground yourself, you know, familiarize yourself with the semantics. Um, And, and, and not just, it's not just a, uh, an intellectual pursuit. This is the thing that I think it, it not only separates good trainers from great trainers or, or bad trainers from good trainers, but is the thing that, um, and, and even the guys and I pick on some folks that pedal methods a lot, but I mm-hmm. think the great practitioners of any method have a very intuitive sense of what we're talking about here. And this is where I think people tend to falter that are new to it. They have success in a specific method and that's good. And I think there's a reason for methods to exist specifically. And I always, think in, in the training of pointing dogs. You can get where maybe you want to be not seeking knowledge, but just going through a step by step process. And it might work for you. But the guys that are great at that process, whether they have the intellectual understanding of what's going on here, they have, they they're such good technicians and and have such good mechanical skills through a lifetime of practice that they're intuiting much of what we're discussing here. The the principles are all exist. And that's why they can take a broad array of dogs and make them make one method maybe work for them. But I think Mm -hmm. for those of us that, that really hope to, uh, to exist in this world, as a dog trainer and and be fulfilled by it, I think it makes the most sense in, in the world to just ground ourselves in the principles and expose ourselves to all the knowledge and then feel and form our own opinions as we go, as opposed to just trying to, to fit a specific style, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things that I like about this book is um, some, styles of dog training, some dog training theories that are marketed or sold as, as new um, are, are outlined in this book quite uh, similarly to how some might market them today. Um, going into the book a little bit more, let me give a little background from the biography here on uh, Colonel Conrad Most. Um, so I'll just read a couple things from the, the biography so that we, we know who we're um, dealing with here. Colonel Most was one of the world's most experienced and distinguished authorities on all types of dog training and a pioneer in the study of dog psychology. He started training service dogs in 1906 while serving as police commissioner at the Royal Prussian Police Headquarters. Um, For the next eight years, he gave instruction to the constabulary, I think I said that right, on training and management of police dogs for all purposes by methods evolved by himself. In 1912, he was appointed principal of the newly formed State Breeding and Establishment for Police Dogs at Berlin and carried out much original research research in training dogs for service personnel and for tracking of criminals. At the, at the outbreak of the war in 1914, Conrad Most was attached to uh, staff of Field Marshal von Hindenburg, Commander-in-Chief in the East, uh, to organize the direct and direct the use of Army Dogs on the Eastern Front, um let's jump ahead here um from 1919 to 1937 he was head of canine research department of the army high command and during that period also acted as an advisor to the government of finland on the organization organization of the finnish canine services he played a leading role in the formation of canine research society of the german society for animal psychology both founded in 1931 and in 1938 Uh, elected honorary life member of both bodies. From 1944 to 1947, Colonel Most was head of experimental department uh, at the Tutorial and Experimental Institute of Armed Forces Dogs. Um, In 1951, he became closely associated with courses held in Palatinate. <laughs> sorry, I don't know where that is, for the instruction of sportsmen in the training and management of hunting and tracking dogs. Uh, in 1954, the year he died, at age 76, Colonel Most was awarded the, uh, an honorary doctorate um, from some college, also words I cannot pronounce, and his manual, Training Dogs, first written in 1910, was translated to English in 1954.
0: So that's, you know, what I hear when, you know, it's, it's it, I always am interested in, in people, number one. But what strikes me, number one, as um, as being profound about that is that he wrote this book four years into his dog training career. Right. And so, like, yeah. he started training dogs in 1906. He writes this book in 19. Well, he started
1: with the the service dogs. So, sure. who knows
0: how much training we don't know he, how much he had
1: before then? Yeah. Right. But Michael. still, four years into like what we call his professional career.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, he obviously, there was obviously time for him to develop thoughts, but he, what a bright person he must have been, you know, like, in, in order to get. Uh, I mean, at a relatively young age to develop these thoughts. So that's you know, it's nice to know what you're working with. And then for those of you out there that may be into um Navda or uh, any of the German breeds, you know, think about the history of of your own breeds, whether you're thinking of the Kurtzar, the longhar, the the Drahthar, I mean, this is this is all happening around the the time of the early development of these breeds and and we know that he had a hand in the, just the German dog culture and i think there's a lot when you look at you know the uh the cultural relevance of dogs in germany there's no doubt that this man had an influence on that world as well so that's that's a fun takeaway for me but yeah i mean he you can't you know sit here listen to those words and and understand that, that he is a pivotal player in, in the foundation of what we all do today
1: so i started thinking about on my drive over here this morning like what um dog trainers that are mentioned today were even around right and um pavlov came to mind and although not a dog trainer we all know of classical conditioning with you know ivan pavlov um and those experiments uh for all our history buffs were the 1890s all the way until the conclusion in 1910 so he wrote this book, who knows if, you know, he knew of his work sure. or if they knew of each other. Um, but, I mean, I feel like he probably wrote this book very independent of knowing those classical conditioning um, models and operant conditioning models. Skinner wasn't even until the 50s or sure. the 40s. Um, so, some of the the things he talks about in the book um, about anticipation and teaching cues and... Uh, the dog learning those things and orders of operations like was all in line with what Pavlov's research came to tell us, you know, for sure through you know those studies um, that were done. But you know, it, it kind of made me think like practical dog trainers, the practitioners, have known many of these things sure. well before science, quote unquote, like um, wrote it down for
0: us. And there's and there's no telling who influenced most i mean at this point it's hard you know and we might be able to and I'd, I'd love to do more historical research because i i'm sure he would have brushed up against stefanitz um you know and i'm sorry who was that max von stefanitz uh the <laughs> am i saying that correctly? i don't know he's actually the founder of the german shepherd breed okay okay right? i did not and, know that yeah and so uh yeah and and he he was a uh, I believe and the story goes and I'm this is all based on recall from things I haven't heard in a very sure, long sure. time right but he was a he was a captain in the German military um, it, it's in some remote outpost in the late 19th century I believe and uh, in kind of bored sitting on a hill and there was a shepherd boy. Working his dog working a flock of sheep with his dog and Stefanitz is sitting up there looking at watching the work and think and, and coming up with like, man, there are applications for this in police and military, essentially. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of credited as the guy that number one recognized the value of the of that working breed. Um, and then from there began the development of of the dog as a working type dog outside of just being a herd. Do you
1: know when what year that was i believe that they, I, I don't have it yeah this is the german ship. this
0: would tree. be the ni- again 19th century so yeah. it, it will I we'll think do. they
1: were facebook friends
0: <laughs> they must have <laughs> been right so so i but there's no way i mean if he's in 1906 kind of yeah. getting there then i mean this is the you
1: these programs like these military programs back then must sure. have been small like yeah. you know yeah. probably not like they are today um where they, you know, are dealing in hundreds of dogs, I imagine. Oh, it's, the it's, scope probably looked very different. It's
0: it's fascinating. It's 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 fun to think about, and I'm sure with some research we can find some things. But I mean, it's you know, who knows? And if anybody listening to this is a is a, yeah. a uh, his, history book. nerd, yeah, like and knows some of this stuff, uh, reach out to us. But but we, this is it. So when we think of our hunting dogs, you know, when we think of the development of breed registries. And in individual breeds of dogs, this is all tracking the same time. The French Brittany came into being in 1906, right? Essentially. And then, you know, the American Kennel Club, uh, I don't even think was around at that point in time. In Europe, they were just taking these land races of dogs in Western, you know, Western Europe. You know, when we think of the Malinois, the Dutch Shepherd, the German mm-hmm. Shepherd, this was these were all regional variations on a similar you know type of dog that was used uh, uh, in, in farm life. Yeah, farm um, dogs. They were farm point. dogs. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, we're the ones, and over the course of the last few generations, since since most time, two generations that have, you know fragmented and isolated things and said that they have to be a certain way. But in, in that time they were just taking the best dogs they thought existed and and working with it. And I think those guys had something that we don't now, which we've kind of re- confined ourselves to these very linear ways of thinking about this. And, and they had, they weren't r- constrained by that, you mm-hmm. know, and that's and it's something that's really important to me now.
1: Yeah. Um, in my mild bit of research, like this is one of the, it might be the oldest dog training book, um, like written and still, you know, in, you know, still available to get. Um, I did find one writing on uh, dog training that is older. Um, it, this is the the oldest book that like comes up in a Google search, but there's, um, I don't, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but uh, S- S- Synodon. Jedicus, which translates to On Hunting Dogs by Xenophon, written in 370 BC. He was a, a Greek philosopher and he wrote a series of four texts on arts or skills one being the skilled cavalry commander, one being on horsemanship, one on estate management, and the fourth being on hunting dogs. And that was written in 370 BC and (laughs) only translated to English in the 1960s. So who knows what, um, I'll have to check that one out next. But outside of uh, the Greek philosopher in 370 BC, this is one of the oldest texts on dog training. And the reason it stuck out in my head as a, a book review to do first is the amount of knowledge in here that is still repeated today with maybe some different terminology
0: and and often repeated but maybe not credited right right I hear a lot of people saying things that sound very similar to that and 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 I'm not again this is not to
1: not a knock on them, not a knock on just, them because
0: they may have kind of come up with these thoughts on their own um but but uh, you know oftentimes folks I think fail to to look to history to make sure that they're the first people to have an original thought, right? But considering, even if you're starting with that, say that that Greek text you're talking about it in 300 plus BC is, uh, you know, is the first dog training that ever occurred, which it certainly was not. Right, Um, right. You know, now we're we're looking at, uh, you know, over two millennia Mm -hmm. of training traditions leading up to Conrad most that are lost to history. And there's no telling how much, um, you know, knowledge was passed down through the ages and, you know, what was lost. And it's fascinating. That's to that's
1: really like my purpose in wanting to do, um, these book reviews and I hope to do a few, um, of them in the future, but, uh, is in the digital age, which it's, you know, I'm 27, it's, it's my age, but I'm still, um, very much a fan of books. I, I have my, the, you know, physical copy of the book in front of me. Um, I like to have it. And I like that um, those things get written down and not lost in the cloud, um, where, you know, digital is kind of forever until maybe it's not one day, who knows. Sure. But um I really like books. And I feel like it is almost becoming a lost form of knowledge due to the amount of people today that like, you know, just listen to books when they're in their car driving on tape or something like that, or, you know, while they're in the gym working out. And it's not very often we sit down and read a book. So, um, you know, hopefully this like inspires a few people to pick up a a dog training book and and an old one and read something that they were maybe just learning about from a trainer on YouTube when, you know, you could have got it in the public library.
0: It's, it's so it's so important <laughs> and i think you know and I, as somebody that consumes a ton of media there are i've got earbuds in my ears all day long yeah, yeah, kind of sh- just like streaming podcast into my brain because i i tend to work alone and i tend to be like around a lot of barking dogs and it's a good place to just um you know good way to to not hear dogs bark and to, to pipe information into my brain and i and i'm an auditory learner and so it really it's it's wonderful for me that way but something about the act of sitting down and reading the fact that it is slow the fact that you lose focus and have to go back and reread and the just the the, the way reading works it, it i think it promotes critical thinking and so you can read things like this book and it, this one because of its h- historical relevancy I, I don't ever feel challenged by it but one thing i've learned to do is read things that i assume i'll disagree with Hmm. and i've i think i've that's aided my development uh, especially as a dog trainer more than anything else you know
1: what i've really liked about (laughs) always reading physical books is i usually have the book and my notebook next to it and it forces me to sit down with just those things and read but when i'm reading you know uh for this, I took notes like within the book to talk about here, but, um, I also have my notebook where, you know, when something came up, um, that, you know, maybe has, um, you know, inspires a thought on what I'm currently training in my own dog. Then I go to the notebook and, you know, I make note of it like, Hey, don't forget that, you know, um, physical body cues lead to anticipation, not just Auditory signals and your physical body cues, you know, are communicating more to the dog. So it's like he has a, a section in here about um, about that. I'm actually going to go back to it real quick, yeah, please do, um, and read it because this was one where I know I notated because it was something that um, you know had just happened in my training with my dog. You know, I'm working on a stay, and the dog breaks, and the dog, you know, and I correct the dog, I reset the exercise, and the dog breaks, and then I go. You know, there's When I read this, I was like, oh, there's a physical cue that I'm doing. So let me, let me jump to this real quick. <clears throat> let us assume that sufficient progress has been made in teaching the down to permit the trainer walking a few paces away from the dog left lying in the open. After taking a few steps, he turns back to the dog, and as he turns, whistles for the animal. After a certain amount of repetition, the dog will get up and come to the trainer as soon as the ladder turns around without waiting for the whistle, for the turning movement that has hitherto followed the call on every occasion has by this time come to mean the same thing to the dog as the whistle. The turning movement has become a secondary inducement, a visual signal for the recall. An undesirable association has been established between the turning around of the trainer and the signal to recall him. Uh, undesirable associations are impeded by a separation in time of the events concurred, concerned in the case under consideration, the exercise must consist in the trainer first turning around, noticing that the dog is still lying down then after an interval of time calling him. So like what, what this means is he he's talking about, you know, avoiding body language cues and using a break in time between those and our verbal signals which we call commands um to mean the to to break from that exercise and to go into the next and if we're you know lazy or sloppy or we always work alone which you know is what i was doing is working alone for a while and i'm i'm not recognizing that i'm probably reaching for you know my reward before i give the command and hear the dog, you know, upon that slight little reach of my hand, like, you know, I'm pretty good with my cues and my body language, but even something subtle, you know, when you're training a dog at a high level, they tune into that, right? They tune into the most subtle of things. So here I am now not causing enough of an interval between my cue and my actual signal. So um, when I read that, I was like, yeah, like, duh. And that's just, you know, conditioning. That's just classical conditioning. And, and, but just hearing him write it, you know, he recognized this 113 years ago yeah. and wrote it down in one of the first chapters in the book because he goes, hey, like dummy, you know, <laughs> understand that everything you do, the dog is learning. So when you want the dog to be responsive to a signal, make sure you're giving that signal in separation to another.
0: It, it, the You know, the cool part is is that he wrote it so long ago and he wrote it so succinctly Right, I mean, it's again. This is something that could be delivered today in a YouTube video from Ellis. I I teach handling seminars, and I teach the same stuff, and you're
1: teaching that, (laughs) right? But it's like you didn't need to hire me. You could have read this free book, (laughs)
0: yeah, a hundred years ago. Like, but and that's you know, but that's the thing. It's and it's also something for all of us. And I mean, you, in particular, especially recently relevant national champion, highest level, in my opinion, probably. PSA, I don't think there's a more popular protection sport in this country right now. No. Um, so to be the PSA 3 national champion, to read this book and have that revelation says something. And so, and I, I don't want to just, I'm not just bl- blowing smoke up your ass. I'm, I'm saying that because we all need to recognize whether we're out there creating our fifth versatile champion or whatever else. These are the things that slip. And when we read it and it sticks, then we go out and we're better. And, and so that's why this is relevant today, and that's why it's important to read mm-hmm. this book today and read it again and, yeah. and never stop reading it. Um,
1: just to just to clarify something for any of uh, my people listening, I was not the national champion in the threes. I was a national champion in the twos whoop. for PSA, and then— A title earner in the threes and then a national champion in the three for American Schutzen. Just for the one person (laughs) listening that's gonna be like, Nope, that's that's not it. Like All uh, right, whatever. But still nonetheless. Well, I think
0: we should have done this podcast. Um
1: let, let me go into one more passage here that um and then I'm gonna see if you if this sounds familiar to you as well. With a powerful form of compulsion, we must also ensure that the initial discomfort subsequently turns into pleasure. We have no wish to see a panic-stricken slave doing what we want in fear and trembling, but a dog that enjoys life and is happy in his work, putting all his heart into it. Just as the art of human education is to substitute desire for obligation, that of animal training requires a disagreeable activity to be changed into an agreeable one. This aim is achieved, in the first place, by the limitation of compulsion already prescribed. It must stop the very instant the act required begins. Secondly, it is essential that as soon as the disagreeable experience ceases, an agreeable one follows immediately as a regular consequence. The result of this liberation from the pressure of compulsion is that the dog quickly learns how to escape from his disagreeable experience. And in addition, finds that the act, though in itself disagreeable, is soon transformed into an agreeable experience. This causes him to develop an amazing zest for his work.
0: Wow. What does that sound like? I don't know. I don't know that I've had escape avoidance. Um. It sounds like Nepopo. That's, that's what I wrote. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if
1: we can legally say that, but it sounds like Bart Bellin wrote that.
0: It does. But I, you know, I guarantee Bart read this book. Yeah. Um. And and I I want to touch on something I saw from Bart re- recently that kind of harkens back to, to the last part of this. But, it, you know, Bart is a brilliant communicator. I admittedly have never done Nepopo like Same. a seminar, but yeah. I I kind of want to just to expose myself to it. Um. But I I you know, we can all sit back. I mean, it's what it is, what it is. I, I think it's very important in the modern era, but that right there, when we talk pressure release, um, when we talk escape avoidance, this is relevant from everything in terms of the very first time you put a, a slip lead on a dog all the way through maybe the, the force fetch process. When We t- think in terms of negative reinforcement, um, in particular, but with, with shades of, all the quadrants. Uh, t- this is something that every person gets hung up on when they're first starting this. There's this leap of faith that is, I've got to n- number one, if you introduce pressure compulsion in, in a way that is, um, is understandable to the dog, desensitizes certain specific, you know, reactions to stimuli uh, and, and, it doesn't have the immediate effect of startling the dog right off the bat. I'm thinking collar conditioning specifically, like then we can show them once they understand the escape part, then we can have confidence. And once they have confidence, then we can get that zest for the behavior that, and and get that good attitude. And so we have a dog that not only is not afraid of compulsion, but begins to welcome it, especially when there's something on the back end that's motivational. Uh, And that's what he's describing probably Mm -hmm. better yeah. Then I've heard it described in the modern era.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his his um description there is, you know, although there's some words that we maybe wouldn't use today, it's also a German just, tra- translation. Yeah, it's from a translation from. and it's old, you know, writing. Um, but this causes the the dog to develop an amazing zest for his work, right? But it's only when ensuring that the disagreeable experience ends as soon as the behavior happens and then follows uh, an agreeable experience, right? He has a section where he talks about teaching the heel, and I don't think I made any notes on that, but I'm remembering it now because of what you just said, where he says the, the heel work on leash should never begin as soon as the leash is put on for the first time. You should put a long leash on the dog he takes about you know 10 yards or more and just let the dog run around with this take him for a walk at most later in the session several minutes after putting the leash on for the first time he says uh then you know you might just restrict the dog at the end of the leash and as soon as he stops and turns back to you you know take him into your arms pet him praise him you know make this a a very positive experience And he says, even when bringing in the compulsion in formal heel work, every time you put the leash on, right, whether you're just getting the dog out or you're reattaching it, you should pet him, tell him this is nice, make positive associations with the equipment. You know, he doesn't say it in that exact language, but that's how I would say it. Sure. You know, condition your equipment to be positive things to the dog. Don't just put this on and start your immediate compulsionary heel work, right? Sure. Um. And I think that's something that even today is lost because, you know, if I reflect on like, you know, many pet trainers I've worked with, like they put the equipment on and immediately start using it, but they're okay with that because they're also using food yeah instead of just spending like, you know, there's a lot to be said for just spending a little bit of bonding time for with sure. the dog or just a little bit of habituation like, hey, for he he even talks about three or four sessions, you're just going to put a long, long line on the dog and let him go for walks, and tell him how great he is, and then only when any fear of the equipment has ceased will you start training with it.
0: We have, I have this thought a lot. Um, As we've become more proficient and more advanced and the technology has gotten better, uh, we've we've lost certain things, we've fragmented, we have camps now, and I would love to hear. I think most. I can only imagine most debating a, a quote-unquote like force-free, positive, purely positive type trainer today. I think that'd be a lot of fun to hear because he he does articulate that so well. And I and I think all of us that are familiar with with kind of that current political climate and also have trained in in various ways and experimented with everything over time, I think we we recognize that. Probably the most intensely happy dogs are dogs that that understand everything Mm, Um, and know how to get what they want and avoid what they don't want. They're never confused. They're always they become confident through that process, Uh, you know, but I think the thing we've lost. And I think the most important thing about this is when you hear that talk that you just gave about the putting on the long line, nothing more than a leash. And honestly, you wouldn't even need that the one thing I never really hear discussed these days is just like simple relationship type based training where mm-hmm. it's like, Hey, you love your, there is something, there's a lot of intangibles to it, yeah. but it's like the exchange of oxytocin as a, as a, uh, a, tra- a, a training implement, you know? And I think when you hear him talk like that, it's, it's, he, it's, uh, it's, very forward in, in his way of thinking, you know, the, the loving, the touching and things that retriever trainers, especially they talk about and do intuitively, but there's a more, I, I, I have been very guilty in the past of being like, well, that's not a primary reinforcer. It doesn't count, yeah, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. but it absolutely counts. And, and so understanding that from, you know, from that perspective, I think is important.
1: Something else that he, he mentions at some point is, um, no training can happen when the dog is still in a state of survival, which this is something that I've heard, you know, trainers today talk about, and I've admittedly stolen, but you know, now I'm going to credit Conrad most when I steal it. Um, <laughs> is you know, if the dog is hungry, thirsty, fatigued, deprived of oxygen, if the dog is injured, hurt, still scarred of fear from a previous instance whether that's training or just something in the environment if he is in a state of survival right so he could be afraid of something that happened in this environment previously it could have nothing to do with you it could be you know he was attacked by a a porcupine in this field and now he goes out there and he's 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 nervous no training can happen when the dog is in this state right and he people will read this and some of the techniques may seem little cruel and outdated. Um, but there's also a lot of talk of, and that's the part I choose to focus on. There's a lot of talk of, of, <clears throat> excuse me, animal husbandry and keeping the emotional well-being of the dog in the forefront. And he says like many times, as soon as the dog is fatigued here, you, you must stop because there's no learning that is going to happen there's no retention that's going to happen when the dog is in a state of survival
0: it's it's and i mean i think the husbandry side is so important to what we were getting at with that relationship-based thing of you know you've worked in in large kennels and i work with a kennel you know most of the time and nothing really matters until that relationship at the kennel gate exists you know, and, and feeding time is so important. The time we spend exchanging, everything happens with intent. It's not always warm and fuzzy, but but it always is developing the relationship first. And then it's like, you know, then the mechanics and all, you know, and, and managing reinforcers and managing punishers and all those things, you know, can apply. But there's, you got to develop a relationship and, and the husbandry side of that is is that the emotional well-being, being connected, taking care, nurturing the animal, uh, recognizing that their survival is dependent upon you? And when you say like in that state of survival, no learnings occurring, I can certainly, from a flight or fi- fight or flight perspective, I think that's true. N- you know, um, it, it, I'd be interested. I think that's worth exploring more to me, and I'd like to to think more about it, like in the terms of of like satiation of appetite when we talk hunger, is it starvation? You know, I don't know, you know, but I think from a training perspective, getting good reps in, we need a healthy, well-adjusted dog in a good mental state. And then we, then we're manipulating and playing with whatever motivational aspects of the the training are happening.
1: Yeah. And that's a very, a very common uh, tactic from any trainers that use food and consider their training very positive yeah. is to practice some level of deprivation sure even if that's as mild uh, as um training around feeding time and waiting until you know the dog uh had breakfast and whatever and then you wait until the evening to do your training session so that he's hungry and anticipating meal time um you know there there's of course a ton of validity to that because it works and otherwise people wouldn't do it but there's also something to be said about you know how much retention happens when a dog is more concerned about getting nutrition than he is about you know what behavior he was in when he got the food right um and you know that's not a knock on on food training or a knock on deprivation. You know, there's extremes, of course, where we don't want to cross certain lines and you know withhold food from the dog for too many you know days on end. But um, I think that sometimes, in a desire to use a certain motivator, we uh, create such a state in the dog that it's actually not conducive to learning.
0: And maybe it can learn in that like that uh that state of uh, wh- what did Clark call it Clark Hall call it? It was like uh, it, 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 a state of you know, instability, you know, there's no stasis. They're trying to get to stasis, and that's why drive reduction works right. Your drive reduction theory works. So we've got to drive, the drive's been produced by uh, you know a lack of stasis, but the key is is like when our dog is the dog needs to be employed. Like we we don't want to go onto the street, you know, on a normal day with our dog that's you know like starving, it, you know, it can't think because it only wants food. We we're not, you know, so if we're depriving our dogs and we're thinking primarily of food, but always keeping them in this state of uh, uh uh of drive that needs reduced in order to achieve stasis, then that's not like your normal average working day. And I think this is, it's like a really nice delineation between. There's a place for that in training. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but not everything always needs to be a conditioned response. There's deeper learning that we don't always talk about, and I think that's one place I think PSA sets itself apart. Is you can't just get through a a routine at the high, at the higher levels, patterning things, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to be able to solve problems, and your dog has to. And this isn't intangible because it's very hard to qualify. But dogs must be thinkers, and if you talk to retriever trainers that win the NRC and they're telling you about their dog, the same thing always comes up and it's that the dog is smart. Like we yeah. don't know how to qualify that, but that dog's the thing that sets that dog apart from other dogs is that he's just smarter than the rest, you know? And I think we all feel that way about the, those dogs at the highest level. And, and that gets to thinking of, of that relationship based training just the deep more than just um, we're not just talking compulsion. We're not just talking, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. We're talking teaching a dog to learn and to think their way through a process.
1: Yeah. Um, Moving in for a second to a chapter on teaching a retrieve. Uh, I have a, a small bit highlighted here. The second undesirable association consists in the dog springing forward as soon as the dumbbell is thrown. This action has been deliberately permitted in order to not disturb the animal's inclination to pick up. As soon as this inclination has become a habit, procedure is altered. The dog now has to sit and is held by the collar while the object is thrown. The animal is then released. If he now tries to make a forward leap, he is prevented from doing so by the appropriate inducement or punishment." He is not to leap forward until the words fetch it are uttered. So he's talking about a couple of things here. He's talking about front-loading the retrieve with drive and motivation, and he's talking about then adding in signal control and the dog not going until released. But prior to that passage, he talks for four pages about developing essentially a motivational retrieve, right? Sure. He's not using clickers and treats or toys. He's just using, you know, good feelings, praise, drive. He talks about kicking the dumbbell and holding the dog back to allow for a little frustration. Yeah. Yeah. And then only, let me let me read it again, how he says it. Um, as, as soon as this inclination, uh, he's talking about the inclination to just pull towards the dumbbell as it's thrown, As soon as this inclination has become a habit, procedure is altered. So every time you throw it, the dog is trying to go out and get it immediately as it's thrown. Only then is that procedure interrupted with some level of force or compulsion. Here he's just talking about holding the dog by his collar, making him perform a sit, and then releasing that on a signal, fetch it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is... uh... It's very pertinent to all we do in this day and age, you know, and we, so many people take credit for developing natural retrieves or a specific method or a style that maybe isn't, you know, outside of the realm of force fetch or like the mechanically built trained retrieve with a marker system or something like that. But yeah, I mean, this, that, of course has existed forever, right? Just playing and having fun and keeping the dog in a high state of drive and making them want to return it to you and learning how to keep that game going in perpetuity. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the most intuitive thing in the world and there's no surprise at all to me that that would, that he would be a master of that. And it's something you can be great at.
1: Yeah. It makes me wonder a little bit about what did the dogs that, this guy is working with look like, like what were the natural abilities and how do they differ from the dogs of today? Was it better, worse? Were they more biddable to physical control? Like I, you know, I've heard some people on a, a gun dog podcast recently talking about, um, you know, the dogs today are, are softer. Um, and you know, whether that's a product of what people desire, so what they're breeding for, or if that's a product of the training, um, and, and the tools allowing for, you know, more nuance in the correction levels. Um, and, but it, it always makes me think about like, you know, um, what were these old, old dogs that it you know, even just 20 years back, but, uh, also a hundred years back, like what were the. The natural drives and the instincts of working with the handler, like so many older books, you know, some from the 70s all the way back to this one, talk a lot about you know the dog's willingness to work with the handler and and kind of having, you know, maybe they don't use the words relationship, but just using that that praise and touch to you know reinforce the dog, um, you know, like we're is this just a different outlook because now we think a lot about you know tangible rewards and what aspect of this is reinforcing and what are we giving the dog in order to incentivize him to do it and not that many trainers maybe more in the gun dog space but not that many trainers in my space use like praise and affection um as like a motivator or a reward you know and it makes me wonder about you know was the type of dog different or was it just cuz i'm sure these guys had I'm sure they picked up a stick and played with the dog with a stick at <laughs> sure, least, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so they, they knew the dog liked rewards, but they he never talks about that. Yeah. He talks about, you know, working with you and he talks about praise and affection and touch and using that. And, you know, I wonder if we're underutilizing that today. Or overlooking it because we have so many more tools, and tools being, you know, e callers and tools being rewards and food, and the use of all these things. When sometimes maybe we need to get back to a simplest form of just, you know, spending time with the dog, petting him after uh, exercise, letting him romp around. He talks about things like that, like just using these more natural.
0: Well, that's uh, you well, know, I, and, you know what is that? And it's like I said, I've I certainly have been guilty of like tossing that kind of talk out the window. Yeah. You know, and I, I heard that a lot when I first went to K2 and was working with these retriever trainers, it's like, well, I was always like, when do you throw in a reinforcer? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, they get praised. They work for praise. Yeah. Well, they don't just work for praise. Obviously they work for the opportunity to go out and pick up that thing that's going to satiate a little bit of prey drive. They're working motivationally. There's all sorts of things at play. And it's obvious to me, like when most, especially talking about restraining the dog and things like that, he's obviously very skilled at managing motivation, but there is something to the thought of working for praise that, that I shouldn't have thrown out um, and dismissed, you know, uh, originally. And I do, I did see something that, and this is kind of goes back to when we were talking NAPO just a while ago and and I do love to follow Bellin. Um, he's so he's so he's got a very unique blend of like very pragmatic, uh, very easy talking, but also also Incredibly like, super technical, super technical, right? And he posted this hierarchy of like sensory perception of dogs and like what, how we manipulate um, the behavior with them. And so like first being smell, uh, and then from there tactile sense. And I think there's some, putting your hands on a dog is so valuable Mm. in so many different ways. So like in terms of developing resilience, of connecting to the dog, of doing, and so we, you know, I don't think we think about that enough. And so we can be whispering sweet, nothing's in their ear all we want, but the, the touch, we're communicating so much more than I think we even notice when, when we touch our dogs. And, and I think we do it, Maybe lacking intent, and that's the place. Exactly, that's you know. what I was
1: thinking. Like, we, just reflecting on myself with my dogs, like, the most I practice, you know, tactile uh, reinforcement or, or touch or whatever is just when I'm hanging out with the dog inside. Like,
0: yeah.
1: not in training. In training, I'm utilizing a tangible reinforcer or the avoidance of a pressure. And, you know, I think something that comes up in here quite a bit is after applying the pressure the first reinforcer is the relief of that right um but then comes you know touch and he calls it fondling the dog a (laughs) little laugh at it but um you know it's just a difference in the language and and you know maybe that has a level of innate comfort that dogs might be more uh in tune to than we are um and that could be by nature because of you know in a pack or with the mother, like, you know, they're not going like, good job. You stepped out of the whelping box. Here's a piece of kibble for you. Like they're, they're rubbing and licking and touching and, and soothing in that sense. So maybe there's even more, you know, something to explore and utilize. I
0: think there's an enormous Pandora's box there considering tactile communication all the way from us putting our hands on them and, and making physical contact with them all the way to what a c- c- collar correction really is and, and, you know, vibrate functions and all these things. I mean, we are communicating in, in a way that is in their wheelhouse and, and we are not nearly as developed as they are in in that sense. So I think us learning to, to have more intent in in that tactile realm of communication with a dog um, could be, you know, an interesting topic to, to consider in the future.
1: This is also an interesting topic from the book that um, may be different today. Sure. Um, so he says, I should like to add one final word on strict compulsion in retrieving lessons. No one, even the most sensitive, will repudiate the infliction of pain necessary in such lessons if the following facts are taken into consideration. Uh, Repudiate means argue or disagree. I had to look that up. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Um, So no one, even the most sensitive, will repudiate the infliction of pain necessary in such lessons if the following facts are taken into consideration. It is realized that human welfare and even human lives often depend on the reliability of the police dog. Moreover, the pain inflicted upon the dog by the methods here advocated is in its duration, intensity, and application extraordinarily limited compared with that imposed in other methods of training, which are based on anthropomorphic misconceptions. So he's saying that, you know, hey, if the stuff I just outlined about retrieving, because then after what we talked about, he goes into a little bit more of layering in the compulsion. Sure. He's saying that no one, even the most sensitive among them in 1910, um, (laughs) will argue that this pain or discomfort, however you want to word it, is necessary for the police dog, for the reliability of the police dog, when human lives depend on the reliability of the police dog right? And that the pain inflicted upon the dog by the methods here are extraordinarily uh, limited in its duration, intensity, and application. Um, And that at a time, I would have said, yeah, no one will argue that the, um, the bits of compulsion Needed to create reliability and behaviors for our working dogs. No one will argue the necessary uh, that that is necessary because human lives depend on the dog performing. So if layering in some of this pressure um, creates stronger reliability, no one's going to argue the efficacy of that, right? Sure, but maybe they do now.
0: Well, they absolutely <laughs> do now, and <laughs> you know, and the funny do. thing is, like, it's cool to hear him. He addresses that. He addresses it. He makes a defense and. It, I'm guessing, and I don't know, I wasn't alive in 1910, but my guess is that there weren't many people screaming in the streets about...
1: Or sharing a YouTube video. Yeah,
0: or talking about the sentience of dogs or the agency or, you know, and and I don't want to laugh at that stuff because I think, you know, I Mm -hmm. think it's always important to keep animal welfare at the very forefront of your mind when you're training But that said, you know, I think it also is important to remember the earlier passage that talked about um, how escape avoidance creates this confidence and, and a a greater zest for the work. Not only is it doing that, it's like you're making, you're helping the dog become a a happier, better, more confident version of itself through this controlled application of, of unpleasant stimuli. Mm -hmm. And, and, that happens to every single one of us in our lives. And, and, you know, we can argue nature versus nurture or whatever else, but I have never, especially in, and I don't want to, um I don't want to patronize anybody else, hmm. but it, you know, my time around law enforcement, military, um, just in this, I'm going to lean into some masculine shit here, but I don't know a single guy That has been a mentor to me in in those masculine pursuits in my life that I look up to that didn't suffer enormous adversity becoming the person they became and they're the best versions of themselves because of that and that's something I argue all the time and it's our jobs as as caretakers of these dogs uh, to ensure that they can become those most confident best uh well-adjusted versions of themselves and and that is an enormous part of that puzzle you know and and to me it's a very important part and i see it more than just creating behaviors i see it as helping the dog be strong so i think that's what he's getting at there
1: yeah and the you know some key wording in that passage and some previous ones is the limitation of this compulsion you know sure. uh lying around you know once the behavior is completed this ends in order to you know increase reliability not to take out emotion or feeling on the dog and you know if that is not something a trainer is willing to do then that's absolutely fine sure but if your aim is reliability especially in like my field of police work sure. and the reliability of the dog can save lives and there's something I can do to increase reliability and to add parameters to a performance so that the, the living, breathing animal doesn't deviate from a task that it's trained to do um, and that the dog staying on that task, you know, saves um, either an officer or someone in the public's life from it staying on that track and not following a rabbit. Because it um, received some compulsion for doing so, or it stays a little bit longer, motivated into the search because some force was layered in at some point, and it pushes a little bit longer and finds an IED overseas, and that saves, you know, American soldiers. Like I don't, I could not imagine arguing the the um, the need for that, right? But. There are plenty of people that that will argue that because they, you know, we're in a state now where animals are valued as highly as humans at times. And this is great for animal welfare. And, like, you know, there's always the joke that, you know, kids in my generation are buying homes based around what yard their pet can stay in, (laughs) not what school their kid will be in. Um, And that's a good thing. But also, there's a community of people um, like ourselves that are training dogs for service and, or have trained dogs for service. And, you know, we are sometimes staring down the barrel of the gun of, of what people want to allow us to do. And I think being open about that and expressing it in this way that the, the increased reliability from some of these techniques cannot be argued in its efficacy because, you know, it might save someone.
0: I, I, th- And I think that is a, I think it's a viable cogent defense of, of that. I also, I, I go a step further in my own mind and, and number one, like, you you know, when we're talking about building a duck dog, nobody's life is dependent upon that dog and making a retrieve, but it, 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 there's no doubt in my mind that that dog is the ultimate conservation tool.
1: Absolutely. I was hoping you are going to say. Yeah.
0: And so that's, that is important. It's very important, but more than that, You know, the, the current political climate, I don't, I I would diverge from thinking that it is great that people are building their lives around their dogs. And I don't know that dogs are better off for that. Mm. I think for sure, like, it's better to not have the cultural, culture of feral dogs run around the Southeast like it was when I was growing up and, you know, uh, and, and there certainly anytime there's something that crosses the line of neglect and abuse, like that's, that's not okay. But I don't, you know, having spent a lot of time and, and lived just enough time on this earth to have seen things change dis- in, in in odd ways, I don't think that your average pet dog that's living in those kind of conditions where they are the center of someone's life mm-hmm. are necessarily happier or mo- more well-adjusted than that pointer uh, that was chained to that barrel outside of my uncle's place 35 years ago, I don't know that that dog's an, a happier dog than that one was, to be honest with you.
1: Ab- absolutely. I, I, I would agree um, completely, right? Like my thought was more around like, you know, the young couple that has a dog and they're ready to, upgrade from where they're renting to a home and they're and they're considering where's the dog going to fit in that is so much better than the dumping of these dogs (laughs) into shelters and whatnot and dumping them on the sides of the road but also like if they were a little less picky and said like you know what that tree is a fine spot for this dog to you know be chained to for a period of time like um i i would agree with you like the those dogs are um in many ways as or more fulfilled because, you know, when he goes out to get, when your uncle goes out to get that dog, like it's getting to do the thing it was intended to do. And it's getting to do that thing and, um, fulfill its purpose. And, you know, I don't know, a, a good bird dog that, you know, um, wouldn't think that was a fine life. Yeah, as long as it got to fulfill that as well. Right.
0: And it's cool. And like, I, mine are all like, you know, usually sleeping on my couch and, and many of my clients are too. So I don't want people to feel like, Hey, no, you gotta no. like just yeah. only let them have adversity. Uh, I enjoy, I enjoy that companionship and I enjoy pampering my dogs to some extent, maybe a little less than my wife. Um, <laughs> you know, but at the, at the end of the day, like you know, let's not – and I, he, he brings up, an, you know, a point that we – that seems to be losing ground in our that – that kind of – Today the zeitgeist of today or the current lexicon right which is anthropomorphism like we you know we say it sometimes but I don't know that we truly ever really mean it when we say it like we shouldn't anthropomorphize these dogs they're not human doesn't mean yeah. that they don't exist they haven't existed for millennia in a relationship with humans but it's it's getting down to that point like of, of con- communicating um with touch and things like that, that's the thing when we talk about non anthropomorphizing, it's like how do we best communicate with our dogs? what is it, it, what is an a, a an ethical way of husbanding these animals like you know and and what's best for them what do they want? And I think oftentimes we're thinking, what do we want mm-hmm. um,
1: especially that's especially applicable with all our working breeds, right, sure. which is kind of where we're both you know, more specialists in, um, is, you know, what would be the most fulfilling for life for this dog. Right. Yeah, And, and how do I facilitate that? Right.
0: For sure. For sure. No, that's, that's great. And I don't know how, how deep we're getting in the book. I'm, I'm getting there. It's, and it's good. I got no timeline. I hope you guys are in for the long haul with us here. Okay.
1: Oh, so the next section, um, is going into practical training for um, police dogs. And this is probably a section where um, I have the most contention with what he says, sure. the most difference with what he says. But it's really just a, a product of the evolution of training and the the change in um, the application of these dogs, like for for police work. So now talking about patrol dogs, he goes for many chapters about um training the the apprehension dog and um they used the dog as a um like a find and bark tool, right? Yeah. Um and he calls it bay Bane. And it's so, you know
0: bark and hold, essentially in the blind, you know, if you yes. think of today.
1: And they um would teach the dog to find a suspect. Um whether that's a criminal or potentially just a lost person or civilian, um, these functions often happened off lead in application. And this was at a time where there was no e-callers. Um, but it's also a different place where a lot of these dogs were working in more of the countryside or even being employed in the cities. Like the cities looked a little different, oh, yeah. right? There's you're not horse dealing shit with- everywhere. Yeah, you're dealing with <laughs> buggies and horses and not, you know, skyscrapers um so the dog was allotted a lot more freedom and the application was to find these people and to just like bay them the way like a you know a coon dog might um and to hold in that position even when attacked this is one of the most interesting parts is like even if that criminal attacks the dog it is to just back up keep its face towards the person, but avoid being struck by them, avoid being attacked by them, and continue to try and hold them with the barking. And the only time this dog is ever to bite is if the person runs, is on a floor. Um, and then they chase and bite them, and then as soon as they're subdued, to go back to bang. and if they try to run again, to bite again. So now they're teaching like a, almost an object guard of this person where you, if The object gets taken, you bite it, and then as soon as it's neutralized, you release and go back to barking. Or if the criminal attacks the handler, then you bite it until the handler has them neutralized, and then they go back to bang. This um, kind of technique of training or this style of apprehension dog was used... um, It's still used some places today, but uh, it was used predominantly up through like the 1980s, and then we really found out that find and bark dogs versus find and bite dogs, which is what's commonly used today, was um, an increased liability. So he, Conrad Most, talks about the liability of the dog just biting random people. If it's a bite-happy dog um, that will bite under any threat or any contention from someone that um, this dog is an increased liability due to probably the nature of the way they're working the dog, right? off leash without any you know safety tools like an e- collar. And um, the I believe it was the FBI um, kind of put out numbers on in the late 80s or the early 90s on find and bark dogs in America versus find and bite huh. dogs. And statistically, the find and bark dogs were biting more people <laughs> sure. than the find and bite do- uh, bite dogs. Because of the the laxadaisical nature, I might say, of how they were deployed, sure. assuming that, they oh, even it. if they find someone innocent or yeah, unassuming, they'll just bark at them, no big deal. But people behave strangely around dogs, and training is not 100% reliable. Sure. And more people were getting bit by finding well, bark sure, dogs. Sure, because how
0: many kids are going to run away from that dog when it comes and bays them, right? Like, right? It, yeah, it's, and, yeah, but it is interesting because you still hear the echoes of that. In modern sport, like I, yeah. I loved reading it and thinking of even an IGP trial today with like the flea to the, to the and guard or, mm-hmm. you know, and it ring sports the same. I mean, all KNPV like perfect mm-hmm. example, that like search of the criminal in the woods thing they mm-hmm. do. Um, so, and I know this isn't extremely relevant to you hunting dog enthusiasts out there, but it's, it's really neat. N- number one, in the historical perspective you know and and considering that these things were developing these uh, styles of training at the same time that our dogs were developing and 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 things of that nature but it, just thinking of natural behaviors of dogs and so bang when we're thinking of hounds or whether we're thinking of anything training or whatever um it's 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 interesting and the way they talked about training it i thought it was cool and we got into a little bit of that discussion talking about being stick shy versus stick sure and things like that and um i know that that's We've evolved in in dog sport from that place, and in the and in the application of police and military apprehension dogs. Um, but I I see it. I see why it would why they would do it that way, and why it would make sense. And I think uh, it's neat to look back on that and to think of the those times and think of uh, you know your uh, your quintessential like r- robber, <laughs> you know, flicking a nickel right, right. in the corner, you know. And yeah, it guy. made me,
1: it made me think about like. How often were these early police dogs in other countries being deployed on this type of work? and what were the crimes you know, like <laughs> what, what constituted biting a or finding and baying a sure. criminal like, you know what, what did versus what didn't because today we have many many case laws around when an officer can deploy a dog and there has to be many things in place and it's got to follow Graham versus Connor and so many things have to check the boxes and then you know individual department procedures setting a perimeter has to be deployed on leash announcements have to be given announcements have to be given again and you have to check all these boxes and it made me think about you know in 1906 in you know Germany, or like, what constituted like, yeah, bring the dog out. Where did they keep the dog? Right, (laughs) was the dog in a crate? Like, was he on the back of the carriage? Like, (laughs) it's interesting. I don't know. And those are so many of the things that, like, I, I don't. Yeah, he might have been dragging a cart
0: full of apples. You know, uh,
1: he's probably just healing with him all day. I'm sure until he got put up into a kennel at night.
0: Yeah, and peep and tom or you know, whatever else out there, some just being accused of something. I mean, you probably you know, being dog bit was probably a much more viable threat back in that those days anyway, just considering people's lifestyles. Yeah. And people weren't quite so sissies either.
1: Well, and also today with like, you know, just simply uh antibiotics, a sure. dog bite That's is true. not <laughs> the not end of your today. day. Right. <laughs> yeah. But a dog bite in nineteen yeah, 20 might've been there wasn't any aug around back then, yeah. yeah
0: yeah it's interesting to think of is there yeah i mean it's fun it really is fun to to you know have those little kind of thought experiments about the historical you know context
1: um the next section goes into his tracking training which um as two guys have who have both done an extensive amount of that for different purposes um there's a lot in here on tracking that is way above its time. <laughs> it's like so unreal. The the there is much um, outlined about scent discrimination. Um, I have a small passage here. Um, there are, however, other scents on a human track which always remain the same throughout. The specifically human smell that comes through the boots and includes the personal or individual scent we are aware today that under certain circumstances a dog may be able to recognize individual scents while tracking and distinguish one from another this faculty should enable us to keep a dog on a single track when when an animal has a certain kind of experience for instance when it notices changes in scent its reaction may be visible to us but if no such reaction is in fact visible we cannot be certain that no change of scent has been noticed it would be an error to always suppose that consciousness of scent changes is at once followed by a visible reaction. Still further from the truth is the view which assumes that all such reactions must be of a character useful to a human being. This attitude is responsible for the belief in imaginary crime dogs, which, when set to follow an unknown track, stick to it without changing over to any other human tracks. We realize today, especially while on service, that the apparent ability of these dogs is due to the trainer's previous knowledge of the task in view and is misinterpreted because of ignorance of the actual sense stimuli that operate on the animal. So he's saying that, you know, essentially, Hey, trainers of the day, if you still think a dog can only follow, um, one track, uh, or will always switch to a another track that it comes a clock across, you're not understanding the animal's full ability and you're not training well, he's also saying. Yeah. And then he goes into outlining how to train this kind of scent discrimination type tracking. And and he talks about not avoiding these contaminated areas, not just going out into the country, as he says it, and laying your own track, but to going where the people are and waiting until the end of a busy day and doing your track training. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm about to do a tracking class um, in a couple months for law enforcement again. And, and it's still something that we battle today is people thinking that the if other people have been in the area, the dog can't follow this scent, the dog can't follow, you know, we can't get it to track an individual. It only will track the freshest scent. And, you know, it's been recognized by many trainers that there is a possibility to scent discriminate and to put the dog on an older track with fresher tracks around, but it requires work and training. That's it. And the, the, um, the excuses are really just, in my opinion, their laziness of not wanting to put in the effort of training that
0: it's tracking is hard. And when you, especially when you start talking, scent discrimination, variable surfaces, which he addresses all of these things. I mean, he, you could on number one, when we talk about this book being a manual, like you could absolutely use this book as a manual and build a really nice working dog today, in my opinion. Um, But, but especially when we talk about the tracking portion of this um, he's very pragmatic in his approach. He doesn't like use magic, like a lot of modern trainers that are maybe at the forefront of some tracking uh, uh, kind of guru type things might use. So he, you know, he recognizes, you know, he doesn't use the term volatile organic compounds, but he also talks about how this is, you know, dogs are, they're going to track in, in a specific order as they learn. And and that's what you're getting at is putting in the time and the reps and tracks and, and that, you know, scent discrimination comes with experience with a lot of dogs and it, it has to be, it's not just training. The dog has to be exposed to a bunch of different variables over time. Um, and, and he does a really good job of outlining that in my opinion.
1: Yeah. And it's not shying away from, the difficulty of the training, but addressing it, right? And using parameters and telling the dog when something is wrong and when the dog is correct. And um, he also talks a lot about using objects on the track. We would call them articles today, but putting down items from the track layer to find. And this, uh, by hiding these items along the track, like increases the use of the nose because we don't just want a dog using its eyes and ears in this situation Um, because when a track is long or the wind is unfavorable or you're in less than ideal vegetation the um, nose is going to be the thing that you know is the most empowering to the dog but he talks about many training styles um, allow for the dog to be visual Right, and that would be like That's still today. I mean, runoffs and trailing and yep. letting the dog chase and be visible and expecting and them doing to that for
0: two weeks and calling it a finished tracking dog
1: and expecting their their expecting them not to use their eyes and for their nose to take over. He says sure. no, like this this does not produce a good reliable tracking dog. We have to use. Items along the way, and we also he talks about not wanting the dogs so aroused when they're doing this work because they won't be able to withstand multiple miles of tracks, and they won't be able to um, find motivation as this track increases in length, and they don't find anybody. And that's that's that's, a, an,
0: that's such a key, and so you talk about ahead of his time with that yeah. one, man. Like that's that's such an enormous concept um, mm-hmm. and being able to work in lower states of arousal and making that the norm you know it takes are, are me tracking?
1: all the way back to the first um, passage about about um, looking at each individual dog and addressing its needs and not saying this is how we track a dog right they they want to find the person we show them the person they run off right or you know for the hunting dog people we have them do a, a duck drag and we let them see it. And then we let them, let them rip. And then, you know, when that's an actual longer trail without a visual stimuli, right. Uh, maybe you don't have a good, you know, feather pile to start from <laughs> and the dog, you know, a lot of the dogs, they can't do this work because their training didn't show them how.
0: Well, and, and it, I mean, it kind of goes back to the experience thing. I mean, he talks about free tracking in there. He's, his. his track aging is, his environmental stuff is, it, I mean, to me, spot on, um, in, in what I've experienced, but just thinking of a duck dog, um, it goes out for retrieve on a cripple and that cripple has gotten away and left a trail and on the ground. And like, this is an experience thing and you can just allow for it to happen over and over again. You might've shot a, a hundred ducks that morning with a big party or something, Um, And this one cripple gets out and whatever the variables happen to be, whether it's the smell of gunpowder, whether it's the blood trail, whether it's whatever, you know, that's, that's where your experienced dog will outshine your well-trained dog in, in every circumstance. And it, it doesn't mean we don't control for variables and we don't train, but it is that it's the working in messy environments and not always having a sterile track and not always you know and aging your tracks appropriately and 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 all, everything else he takes into account it's it's it all parallels one another
1: yeah he also talks about how um you should always vary the tracking field and not do this type of work in the same place over and over again sure. like if you want to have reliable results and a dog that can come out cold and do this um, and start on a cold track and be proficient then your training needs to replicate that so like you know some of the experience that a dog gets from many years in the field can also be brought to him in training. Absolutely, if you're not just training in the backyard every time, right? Yeah. And if how
0: many of us? And I mean, even today, I'm I'm guilty of those moments, and I have to remind myself, like, okay, I got to break Tuesday and Thursday of this week off to get off site and train. Gotta go somewhere. And it's it's hard because mm-hmm. you're busy, you know. But it, the, all the greats do it, mm-hmm. you know. That nobody is out there killing it that I know that isn't uh, isn't traveling to train. No, you know.
1: No, you have to. Um, if you want to have, like, reliability, if you want to be at a high level, you have to, right? Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be stuck, um, you know, accepting a certain level of performance from the dog. And if that's, you know, your aim, to just have a dog that's pretty good, yeah. then, like, you know, you're still doing better than most people by, by training at all. Absolutely. But it can be as simple as just, going to a new place each week to rep out the same things and doing the same things in different environments um, in order to add a lot of experience to the dog, whatever the discipline is, right? And that's all the way from our pet trainers to bird dogs to police um, is just kind of mastering those basics in any environment. And that leads the dog to having a lot more experience. You know, maybe he comes across new dog and animal sense in this field while working on obedience sure. than he encounters in your neighborhood, right?
0: Just variables. I mm-hmm. mean, it's it, it's that they're, it's, it's external stimuli that are always going to change with location. But, you know, I think, I've not read admittedly a lot of like books that are focused on tracking. I, I know I've read plenty of articles, but I don't think I've ever read a better tracking manual than that
1: it's very good considering it's when it was written and um um just the just the theory of it is is as sound as any book from the modern era yeah um even though it's it's a afterthought it's a last chapter of this of this book that covers so many different things
0: and he still i mean harnesses all these things you know when he
1: he talks about the like the original botcher which his friend made the original botcher harness his name was i I don't know how you pronounce it it was like (laughs) botcher, but now we just call it botcher harness which is a, a type of tracking harness that runs the leash under the dog's chest and out the back legs to um you know to pull the head down and to keep the head in a lower nose position than tracking on, you know, like a harness that clips to the back or a collar that clips to the neck. And um, he talks about that. And I'll tell people about botcher harnesses today. And they're like, never heard of it. (laughs) It's like, um, you know, this is is why I want to do this kind of thing is like, to just bring a little bit of awareness to some old knowledge. That's really, I don't even call it old knowledge. It's just, its knowledge written a long time yeah, ago
0: yeah i mean it's 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 just it's so high quality it's it's you know again you know if he were alive today if he wrote that book today it'd be a bestseller yeah it it should be and i mean it may not if everything may not be relevant in the modern times um i think more than anything though it, it would all hold up you just absolutely you can train a dog by this book and and produce a good dog you'd have some weird stuff going on if you were trying to do sport I think in some of your yeah, yeah. you know in the other stuff but if you kind of if you just take a little bit of that stuff out of the the protection side everything else in there is solid solid information
1: Um, you mind if I read uh, closing passage
0: not at all please is
1: there anything else you want to talk about before we do that no or do you want to talk about well, anything this brings to mind after
0: yeah well maybe we'll wrap up with a few thoughts at the end of this but this is kind of hmm. closing out the book
1: okay it never occurs to anyone merely to study a manual on riding and then mount an unbroken horse in order to break it in the animal's powerful physique prevents such action horses are broken in by specialists in riding technique not only not until they have been thoroughly broken are they mounted by those who are learning to ride and the lessons proceed under the direction of a riding master as a rule matters are arranged differently with dogs They are not so strong, unfortunately, as horses. Accordingly, a dog is put on the lead straight away and marched off while his human companion behaves from the start like an omniscient master, though he may, in fact, know little or nothing of the subject of training. The physical superiority of man to a dog makes it easy to forget that man is also a pupil and to fail to realize that the relationship of man to dog is more is a more difficult one than that of man to horse the dog is the only domestic animal in the employment of man in which psychological in addition to physical attributes are turned to account for this reason the necessity for expert knowledge in the training and management of dogs is even more essential than in the breaking of horses An animal like a horse, which is used almost exclusively as a mechanical instrument, is far easier to control than one in which psychological as well as physical factors have to be taken into account and applied to practical purposes.
0: I mean, it doesn't get any better than that or more relevant.
1: No, I mean, the comparison of, you know, we utilize a specialist to train the horse and then they are mounted by those who are learning and proceeds under the direction of a master is not always followed in dogs. Not, right? Hardly I mean, ever followed. In dogs. It, it's, he says it perfectly. Here's the leash. You're stronger than the dog. The dog knows some things now, any issues you'll, you know, dog's not going to buck you off and kill you. Right. Um, and, and, he goes on a little bit longer to outline the importance of instruction by a, you know, training master, and sure. that's what he was doing. He wrote this book as the training manual, I believe, for the army, sure. um, and then, he, you know, he says, just because you've read the book, you're not the master, yeah. right? You are the student, and the dog has psychological needs that you can't learn from the book. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, it was really a perfect closing to the, to the, um, to the training manual of kind of saying like, here's your manual, here's your knowledge. You still don't know anything. Yeah. You need, you need a master, you need a mentor.
0: And it never ends. Right. Like, I mean, it's, it's, you know, today we have this word science shoved down our throat so much, Um, and, and there are many out there that do that. They kind of shout each other down. They shout us down and, and they use this religion of science to do that. And so few of them have exposed themselves in such a way that they're willing to step on a competition field with the dog or that they're willing to to accept the guidance of someone maybe that they don't even agree with by nature. Um, and I think, you know, he, you couldn't make that point any better than, than the end of that, which is never, never stop seeking knowledge, never stop learning, never stop finding people to learn from, um, and and no matter what point in your career you're at, you know? And, and I, I think if there's anything, people listening to this, you know, Getting from it is just keep keep doing that. Keep picking up books. Keep reading. Keep finding people to learn from, uh, and don't stop and keep getting better.
1: And if it's something that you enjoy, um, not everyone needs to, but um, that's why I'm such an advocate for competition. Is yeah. um, you can sell your system to as many unknowing people as you <laughs> would like, but until you're willing to prove your system like yeah. over and over again in a competitive venue with an unbiased third-party judging, um, it doesn't have a lot of merit to me, right? I want to uh, talk to the people that are winning in their field, right, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. And doing that, you know, repeatedly, right, or doing that across different avenues and, um, you know, have trained a lot of dogs and have a lot of knowledge, but are still willing to go out, you know, even in their, their expert period, you know, kind of on the Dunning-Kruger model um, are still willing to go out and say, you know, I need someone to, you know, I want someone to judge my work. Absolutely. And that's what I um, like about competition is it's a proving ground for your training um, ideas. And because until then, they're just ideas, right? Uh, Or they're just something that you can prove, you know, in your own yard or your own field. But until you can replicate that, then it's like, I don't want to say I I don't care, but I'm not as interested.
0: We all, we all use systems and, and many of us are going to, you know, you're, you're going to develop a style as a dog trainer and, and it's going to suit a thing that tends to work for you and is a replicable process. But that doesn't mean that the system is doing the work for you. Systems don't make champions. They don't make hunting dogs. They don't make police dogs. Trainers and dogs make those things. I mean, dogs win field trials. Handlers and dogs win field trials. It's not the system you're using. So by all means, become competent in systems. Um, but don't ever feel as if, you know, number one, you're, I guarantee you will find a dog at some point in your career that will challenge your system. And, and then number two, don't be afraid to step outside of that. And, and I think always doing this thing that we're doing right now prevents us from doing that, pre- prevents us from putting our blinders on and feeling like we've got it all figured out because we don't. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a, a good place for us to wrap this up. Ben, thank you so much for coming. Um, this is something uh, that I hope the people out there enjoyed. I certainly enjoyed it. So I'm going to keep asking you to come. Um, and do this. This may be something we spin off. Maybe it, it's not pertinent enough to, to our subject matter that we make our own little podcast out of this. But for the time being, um, we'll keep reading books at our own pace. And then when we figure it out, we'll get together and, and put one of these on. But uh, it's always fun having you around. Uh, make some time this winter for us to get in the woods a little bit. Uh, maybe we'll actually get into some birds this time. Yeah. And, absolutely. Uh, and then, yeah. And then let the folks know where they can find you because uh, you got a lot to offer.
1: Uh I'm Ben Lipinski and my website is LapinskyKine.com. Uh also Lipinski canine on Instagram. Uh don't use the Facebook as much. Um, you know, check it out. Send me a um message or an email about scheduling some training. Um I also have a if you're interested in decoy work for any of the bite sports or police dogs, I also have a Patreon for those type of instructional videos, which can be found on my website.
0: I I think this is just, and I'm going to say this on air because it's going to put pressure on me to follow up with it, but I would (laughs) love to collaborate with you on like some tracking stuff sometime. I think there's a lot of cool crossover between man tracking and, and blood trailing and things like that. So, so uh, you guys keep reaching out, put the pressure on us to get that done. And we'll, uh, we'll start looking for another book to talk about in a few months. Thanks, bud. Thank you.